From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Edward Alden from the Council on Foreign Relations joins me to discuss President Trump's tariffs on steel and aluminum, as well as the potential impact that's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. To protect and build our steel and aluminum industries, while at the same time showing great flexibility and cooperation toward those that are really friends of ours, both on a trade basis and a military basis. A strong steel and aluminum industry are vital to our national security, absolutely vital. Steel is steel. You don't have steel, you don't have a country. Our industries have been targeted for years and years, decades, in fact, by unfair foreign trade practices leading to the shuttered plants and mills, the laying off of millions of workers, and the decimation of entire communities. And that's going to stop, right? It's going to stop. This is not merely an economic disaster, but it's a security disaster. We want to build our ships. We want to build our planes. We want to build our military equipment with steel, with aluminum from our country. And now we're finally taking action to correct this long overdue problem. It's a travesty. Today, I'm defending America's national security by placing tariffs on foreign imports of steel and aluminum. We will have a 25% tariff on foreign steel and a 10% tariff on foreign aluminum. That was President Donald Trump at his recent signing ceremony, where he officially placed an additional 25% tariffs on steel and 10% on aluminum imports. The president's decision to place tariffs on steel and aluminum was met with controversy. Many members of his own Republican Congress were opposed to the action, as well as many economists and trade experts. Gary Cohn, President Trump's National Economic Council director, reportedly resigned last week in protest. But now the tariffs are in place. What does it mean politically? What might it mean economically? And what might be the response from China, not to mention U.S. allies? Joining me to discuss the possible ramifications is Edward Alden. Alden is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Edward Alden, welcome to the Public Morality. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Since, pre- since President Trump first announced his intention to impose tariffs on steel and aluminum, there have been some slight revisions. So could you briefly outline what the tariffs uh, imposed would look like as you understand them today? Great, thank you. Um, so, so the president has announced that the United States will impose a 25% tariff, which is an import tax, on all shipments of steel to the United States and a 10% tariff on aluminum imports. He has exempted for the moment two countries, Canada and Mexico, which of course are our partners under NAFTA. 
Uh, he appears to have worked out an arrangement with Australia, which is a small producer, under which Australia will also be exempted. There are negotiations going on with other U.S. allies and trading partners to see if, uh, if the U.S. might be willing to grant further exemptions from these tariffs. Now, I was going to ask this later, but since, since you brought it up, I think it warrants it now, that, that given that, as I understand it, what roughly 48% of uh, imported steel comes from Canada, Brazil, South Korea, and Mexico, all of which are uh, U.S. allies, um, if you start giving exceptions, does this go from potentially a trade policy to, as some would say, economic blackmail? Well, um, you know, some of the some U.S. trading partners might say that. I mean, the whole the whole process is slightly bizarre. I, I lack a better word for it because the provision of law that the president has used dates back to 1962 and allows for restrictions of imports on national security grounds. I.e., there's concern that the U.S. and its close allies can't produce enough steel or enough aluminum to meet U.S. needs in in wartime. So because it's based on national security, this process of going around and trying to negotiate one-off exemptions just makes no sense at all. Also, you know, flatly illegal under the, worlds of, under the rules of the world uh, trade system. So it's all a, a somewhat strange process. fits, however, closely with what President Trump said for a long time, really going back to the, the mid-1980s. He, he wants to use access to the large U.S. market as a bargaining chip, and he's figured out a way to do that. Well, that's rather ironic because at the, at the same time when the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership went into effect without the United States participation, we seem to be languishing in policy, my words, not yours, that uh, in the best-case scenario was, was more applicable to something 60, 65 years ago, if then. Well, I mean, you know, to give to give the the president his due, he ran a campaign that was fundamentally opposed to the way the United States has been conducting its trade policy basically for the last 75 years. And he said, you know, when we do these big deals that involve a lot of countries, as the Trans-Pacific Partnership did, there were a dozen countries involved. He he believes that the United States uh, gets the, the short end of that stick because we have to bargain with all these other countries. He would rather engage in one-on-one negotiations in which the United States is always the biggest kid on the block because we remain the world's leading economic power. And, and, and that's what he's doing. I mean, you can disagree with it. I disagree with it in a lot of ways, but it's quite consistent with what he's been saying for a long time. He, he thinks he's got a better approach to U.S. trade policy than, than past presidents have had. He's got a lot of confidence on this issue. I mean, on a lot of other issues, I think he's only learned the details recently. Trade's something he's been talking about for a long time. You know, as you, as you give your last answer, I was thinking that uh, in 2008, candidate Obama promised everyone that the first order of business, he would close Guantanamo Bay. Guantanamo Bay is still open. So yeah. there, there's always a perspective outside the Oval Office that, that sometimes differs uh, from the Oval Office. But in this case, uh, there are a lot of trade experts. There's a lot of economists who just cannot see how this is a net benefit to the United States, let alone the world economic community. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think it is. But, but, you know, go back to candidate Obama. Candidate Obama 
promised to renegotiate the NAFTA with Canada and Mexico. In 2008, he said it was a lousy deal, and and he would renegotiate it. And then when he got into office, I think he was persuaded by the people around him that the, the flaws were relatively minor and that continuing to pursue trade opening was a good thing for the United States and, and ended up in a position much like uh, all of the previous presidents, going back to Franklin Roosevelt. Um, Donald Trump has taken a very different position and, and and he is pursuing it i think you know my my belief certainly that of 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 most of the people who follow this closely is that, that it will be damaging for the united states i think you know whatever gains are going to come to steel and aluminum production from the new tariffs are going to be more than offset by job losses and all the steel using industries like uh, you know automobiles or pipelines or construction equipment or you know, you throw in beer cans for aluminum. There are a lot of other sectors of the economy that are going to pay a high price for this. So I, I don't think it's beneficial for the United States. Certainly damaging for the world trade system, and we can talk about that more. But but again, it is it is completely consistent with what uh, candidate Trump said. I mean, the president is. You go back. You look. He gave a speech in June of 2016 in a little town called Manesson, Pennsylvania, which used to be a big steel-producing town, is no longer. And he laid out precisely what he was going to do on trade, and he's been doing all of it. Well, you sort of touched on it, but the, the, the assumption is that these actions will be a, a, uh, a benefit for steel and aluminum. When you factor in automation, um, Coupled with the, 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 the millions of steel-related jobs as opposed to the 140,000 steel jobs, according to the uh, Bureau of, of Labor Statistics, is this even a benefit to the aluminum and steel industry? I mean, the, the, the narrow ones. Look, let's broaden this out a little bit because this, you know, this is ultimately about a much bigger issue, right? The, the issue underlying this has been the steep decline in manufacturing jobs in the United States. Um, and that's been going on for some time. It, it, it was really accelerated in the 2000s when we saw the disappearance of about 6 million manufacturing jobs, roughly a third of the total. And, and manufacturing jobs have, in, at least in the modern history of the United States, been a special sort of job. It was, it was work where people with fairly modest levels of education could earn high wages. They were they were absolutely a backbone of the middle class in this country. And the disappearance of those jobs has had significant consequences in many, many different parts of the country, most particularly the places where Donald Trump won election. You know, you go to Pennsylvania or Ohio or Michigan or Wisconsin, you see the impact of those lost manufacturing jobs. I mean, you're there in North Carolina. You look at the hollowing out of the textile industry and, and the impact that had. So that's the broader context here. Now, to get back to your question, of course, a lot of that is not trade. It's automation. I mean, a, 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 your average steel worker today is producing five times as much steel as he or she did in the 1980s, and that's because the industry is far more mechanized. So even if you protect the steel industry from import competition, you're not going to add all that many jobs because it's a highly mechanized, highly automated industry. And that's true across most of the manufacturing sector. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Edward Alden, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and we're discussing President Trump's uh, recent enactment uh, of tariff policy. Uh, 
Do we, in your opinion, have an example when imposed tariffs uh, were successful on the United States' behalf, historically? Um, yeah, there are, there are a handful of examples, and, and it's always been when there was some sort of larger strategic end. I think one of the most successful cases was in the late 1980s. President Reagan uh, put in place $300 million worth of tariffs on exports of Japanese computers and, and other items that, that involve semiconductors. And, and there was an explicit strategic reason. The Japanese uh, had a closed market. They were not buying uh, computer chips made by Intel or other American companies. They had developed a strong domestic industry. They were exporting to the United States. It was a patently unfair situation. And, and the Reagan administration said, look, until you're willing to open your market and purchase our semiconductors, even as you're selling them to the United States, you can use temporary tariffs to achieve larger strategic goals. That is not going on in this case. Um, actually, to be fair, it could, but mostly it's not going on in this case. Uh, there are ways you could spin this that could be beneficial, but at the moment it doesn't look to me like the Trump administration has a clear strategy. Uh, uh, the one area we, we haven't touched on yet um, are, are the potential repercussions. And um, one of the things that struck me about these particular tariffs um, is that, correct me if I'm wrong, sir, but we have to get through eight U.S. allies before we get to the amount of steel that China actually uh, sends into America. So, so most of the brunt initially is with, was with U.S. allies. So how might they respond to this? And you've already talked about the carve-outs, but how about the others that don't make the carve-out list? Yeah, so, I mean, so the, the concern here, I mean, you mentioned China. The, the, I mean, the story here, China is the source of a lot of this problem. I mean, China today produces 10 times as much steel as it did just 15, 16 years ago, and a lot of that is a result of government subsidies that have expanded steel production far beyond what would normally be considered economic. China doesn't actually export all that much steel directly to the United States, partly because we put tariffs on a lot of that steel already. Um, this action, as you rightly note, is going to hit a lot of American friends, you know, Brazil, South Korea, the Europeans, Japan, and others. Um, concern is that they may retaliate. Uh, the Europeans have been quite explicit about it and said that if the Trump administration doesn't relent, it's prepared to put in place uh, uh, tariffs on exports of a whole range of U.S. products from kind of iconic brands like uh, Harley-Davidson motorcycles and Kentucky bourbon and Levi jeans to, to agricultural products of, of all sorts, uh, uh, to American-made sinks. They've, they've thrown in everything but the kitchen sink. So, <laughs> so if, you know, if, if you get into that sort of retaliation, then there's a lot of sectors of the U.S. economy that have nothing really to do with this dispute that are going to be harmed uh, by the reaction. So that's a, that's a very real fear. And I was, I was just, it just occurred to me, uh, you give your last answer, uh, I know Britain uh, will be coming soon to, to, to talk about a potential carve-out, but, can, but even with the Brexit election, can Britain uh, get their own carve-out? Do they, uh, right now, are they still part of the EU? Right now they're still part of the EU. Yeah, I don't know exactly how you would how you would administer that and, and 
for certain the Europeans would object vehemently. Uh, you know, Europe has acted as a single entity in trade policy for many years now, and 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 strictly speaking, Britain is still part of that. Though, so, you know, again, uh, all of this is being done not according to the rules as they've been adhered to for decades now. So, so I wouldn't put it beyond the administration to figure out some way to just carve out Britain to try to do a, a, a favor for the for the UK uh, while not exempting the Europeans. The Europeans would hate that, but I think it's quite possible. Uh, what is the role of the uh, the World Trade Organization? That is a complicated question, to which I'll try to give a simple answer. Um, when the WTO was created in 1995, what it did was really create a kind of astonishingly comprehensive system of rules for international trade and binding procedures for resolving disputes. If, you know, if the United States felt like some country was trading unfairly, could take a case to the WTO, WTO has this internal court system which would rule on the case, and if it ruled in favor of the United States, then the U.S. could levy penalties on other countries, and we've had you know, penalty threats against us. It, it, it's in some ways amazing. You think of international relations basically as just the interactions among sovereign powers. This was a case where the countries of the world handed over some portion of their sovereignty, in effect, to the World Trade Organization. Um, the Trump administration hates this. They made it very clear they hate this. They think the WTO has been harmful to the United States. They think it's tied the hands of the United States. They think we were better off back in the 80s when we were the biggest kid on the block and we had the freedom to do what we wanted to do on trade policy. And this administration is determined to reassert that freedom. So so this action, I mean, I can go into the details if you want, but this action is clearly a violation of WTO rules. Um, U.S. allies are going to complain to the WTO, but I think the United States is not going to listen to what the WTO says on this subject. It's, it, it, the U.S. is busy making the World Trade Organization irrelevant. You know, I, I think about, um, you know, Thomas Friedman, New York Times columnist, some of, some of the, um, his work on globalization. I think about uh, Fareed uh, Zakaria, who, who defines it as the rise of the rest. Uh, is some of this, in your estimation, our inability to have the frank, judicious conversation that we need to have with ourselves about where we are in the world and, and how the world has changed? Because everything I hear you say um, is about policy, about the way things used to be in the 80s and 90s. Well, this is 2018. I, how, do, how do you see that, sir? Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I don't I don't think we we do have the frank conversations. I mean, my own contribution to the sort of Fareed, Tom Friedman genre was a, a, a book that came out about a year and a half ago I wrote called Failure to Adjust, How Americans Got Left Behind in the Global Economy, which is very much about our inability as a country to adapt and respond effectively to the changing nature of international competition. I mean, we went from being the biggest, most powerful, most competitive economy in the world. You go back to the 1960s, when the trade unions thought trade liberalization was a great idea because the United States made everything better than everybody else. Well, we don't make everything better than everybody else anymore. We're in a much more competitive world, and we really haven't adapted to that new reality. And, and I think you know, what we're seeing with the Trump administration is this kind of you know, primal scream, stop the world, I want to get off, we don't like it the way it is now, we liked it better 
back then when when we were the 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 the, the toughest actor around and is sort of desperate desire to turn the clock back but that's just not the way the world works right we for better or worse it keeps moving forward in the best case scenario can can you chart out a vision how this indeed uh would be beneficial uh to americans the, the best case scenario i have is that it will force a set of overdue conversations, particularly between China and the United States. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a lot of anger in the world right now at the administration, what it's doing on steel and aluminum, but, but China deserves a lot of the blame. I mean, China, in effect, gamed the WTO system for two decades uh, uh, by uh, doing all sorts of things that really were in violation of the spirit, if not the actual rules of the WTO. Edward, take, a moment, allow- if, Edward, take a moment, if you would, and talk yeah, about sure. some of those practices so people would know yeah. just exactly what China was guilty of. Yeah, I mean, I think primarily some of the, the weakest provisions in the WTO have to do with restricting government support for industry. I mean, essentially, the WTO was designed for market economies and for companies that were either privately held or owned by their shareholders and weren't receiving big infusions of government money. Now, to be, you know, to be fair, nobody's got clean hands on this. You know, you look at the history of Airbus or, you know, we do things in the United States to shower tax breaks on companies. So nobody's got clean hands here. But the Chinese have been by far the worst. They have pumped hundreds of billions of dollars into sectors like, you know, solar power, wind power, shipbuilding, steel, aluminum, semiconductors, uh, next-generation batteries. Um, and, and because they have this large, essentially protected domestic market, these companies are then able to reach a scale that they are, they are formidable international competitors. That is not the way it's supposed to happen. Companies are supposed to succeed under WTO rules based on they're kind of independent, competitive capability. It's supposed to be a market-driven system. And the Chinese have never adhered to that. And the United States and other countries were very, very slow at waking up to this and at pushing back. So, you know, to get back to your question, best-case scenario, best-case scenario is this, this triggers a long-overdue set of conversations between the United States and China, between other countries in China and the United States, on how to try to revise the rules of the system to accommodate both China and the United States and other countries in some sort of fairer set of arrangements. Uh, I don't know if we'll get there, but, but you know, sometimes you, you, you got to knock a few heads together to, to force changes of that kind. And, and, and on my optimistic days, I tell myself that that's what the Trump administration is doing. I'm, I'm, I don't really think that's how it's going to come out, but you asked me to, to give the rosy scenario. Well, well Edward, I, you know, trade policy is, is not my area of expertise, so, but I'm just going to respond with a follow-up question. Uh, based on this discussion, you know, we, we've already said that um, the, the initial um, targets would be many U.S. allies – um, you also have a jealousy factor. If you, you, you exempt some allies, you don't exempt others. But now you're saying in the best-case scenario, these allies will come together uh, with the United States who pulled out of the TPP and, and, and uh, work with China to get some 
a level a leveler playing field. Is that did I understand that correctly? I just want to know. You you understood, <laughs> right? And and you know into the negotiations with China, I you know I wouldn't have gone after allies on steel and aluminum. I would have tried to to get their cooperation. I mean, there's sort of a a, a particular theory here, which is you know that that okay, we're going to threaten our allies with negative consequences, and then they're going to stand behind us in going after the problems in China, because if they help us go after the problems in China, then maybe we won't whack them with steel and aluminum tariffs. I, I think, you know, it's a kind of wild bank shot that I don't think is likely to succeed, but uh, but that seems to be the administration's thinking. Again, this sort of, you know, use the leverage of our market to try to force everybody else, you know, friends and adversaries alike, to play this game the way the United States wants to play it. Um, I don't think we're big enough to pull that off anymore. You know, you mentioned Fareed Zakaria and the rise of the rest. Uh, we don't have the kind of muscle as a country we had in the 1970s and 1980s. I think we need to work with our allies, but that is not this administration's view. Well, one of the things we haven't talked about is we haven't talked about how China act might actually respond, because th- th- there will be a response. Um, any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, China's not going to respond to the steel and aluminum tariffs because they don't really hit China. So I think at the moment, Chinese officials are kind of smirking and watching the United States fight with its allies and saying, hey, this, this ain't our problem. We're, we're staying out of this. So I think they'd be willing to wait it out. The, the problem is there's another shoe that's going to drop. There is a, uh, an investigation going on under another sort of old and, and, and little-used provision of U.S. trade law that's going to result almost certainly in a series of U.S. tariffs on imports of Chinese-made products. I mean, we're going to go after China directly, either with import tariffs or with investment restrictions or, or with other measures. And, and those, I think, China will have to respond to. I mean, the, the history with China is, is that when you hit China, it hits back equally hard, you know, probably by blocking U.S. agricultural exports, which, of course, gets all the farm states up in arms. And so, you know, I think, I think we are on the cusp of a, of a big trade battle between the U.S. and China. Again, the optimistic scenario, you know, that the, the policymakers both in Washington and Beijing realize that it's not really in their interest to have a U.S.-China trade war, and they sit down and start having serious conversations. But it is, it is no question, it is a highly risky strategy that the Trump administration is pursuing and, and, and could result in, in, in a lot of backlash from China and elsewhere. But, just, but the record of... Uh, winning trade wars uh, is, is 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 not a high one. I mean, essentially, I mean there are more losers than winners in a trade war. Is that is that fair? I mean, no question. You know, if you you know, I mean, the last time the United States really engaged in what I would probably call trade wars was in the 1930s, and 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 that wasn't good for the U.S. and it wasn't good for the rest of the world. But but you know, I mentioned the smooth you know, Harley was effective. Battle. Sorry, go ahead. I, I yeah. was I was being sarcastic. I said, wasn't smooth Harley effective? Yeah, well, it was it was effective in harming the U.S. economy right. and harming right. a lot of other economies. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it was effective in an ineffective sort of way. Um, but, but you know, again, not to be completely black and white about this. Sometimes, you know, you ask me of, of examples of successful tariff threats, and and you know, I gave you one in the Reagan administration. I could give you more out of that era, which is very much the model for this administration. You know, they look at how the U.S. responded 
to the to the Japanese economic threat, which was very real in the 70s and 80s. I mean, remember, the Japanese were cleaning our clocks and wheels right. and auto and ships and television sets and a whole bunch of other sectors. We were worried about so the yen the need, replacing the dollar. I remember yeah. that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, Hollywood began making movies about how the Japanese were going to take over the world. So, so I mean, there was a, a similar kind of concern with Japan then that we have with China now. And I do think there is a need to push back. But the question is how you push back effectively and how you push back without igniting a larger trade conflict, which would hurt the United States, hurt China, and hurt the rest of the world. And, and, and I hope that this administration is smart enough to pull that off. I, I can't say I'm confident that they are, but I hope. Earlier in the conversation, you, 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 you mentioned um, the president's consistency about he, he has believed this policy for a, for a long time. And it's, it seems to me um, that we're at this sort of nexus between politics and policy because the politics says that you, uh, in a state that you um, won by a, a, a few thousand votes, that's key to your reelection that you've already said you're going to run again. Um, so you help them with this policy, with this political statement, but the policy and everything you've outlined says there's really very small margin of success. Not that, not that success could not happen, right. but the right. possibilities are, are, are not that great. Is that? That is fair. But the politics, you know, politics are reasonably good for the administration, especially with, you know, that kind of slice of working class voters who are so important in a bunch of the key electoral states, you know, the ones that I mentioned, like Ohio and Michigan and Pennsylvania and other places. There's, you know, there's something kind of viscerally appealing about what the president's doing. You know, think back to the six million manufacturing jobs that disappeared in the 2000s. You know, when the union workers and others were complaining to Washington, basically what they got was, oh, we can't really do anything, right? It's the rules of the world trading system. It's automation, right? The machines are coming. We're sorry that you can't support your family anymore, but this is just the reality of the global economy, and there's nothing we can do about it. So to have a president who seems to be fighting, um, a lot of people like that. I mean, there have been interviews I've seen with auto workers, and auto workers are going to get harmed by this because the cost of steel for the auto industry are going to go up. But they're kind of there, you know, a bunch of auto workers are saying, wow, Nice to see a president who's finally pushing back on this, who's finally fighting for manufacturing workers. So this is surprisingly popular. It's got the Democrats hamstrung. I mean, a lot of the Democrats do not know how to respond because they've been talking for years about wanting a tougher approach to trade, and now you've got a Republican president doing it. So, you know, Chuck Schumer and a bunch of others have been pretty quiet on this and basically said, well, yeah, we, you know, we're not sure about the tariffs, but we want a tougher trade policy. So politically, short run probably rather than long run, but politically in the short run, this, this could be a winner for the president. Well, that, that, that's, a, that's a very interesting point, and I, I, I definitely see it. I also thought, as you were giving your answer, that the, the benefit um, would be is, is focused on a particular region of the country, in this case, say, Pennsylvania, uh, for example, but the impact is more spread out. Like if you're an aluminum can fact, uh, manufacturer in North Carolina, uh, you steel, you steel, you steel related products somewhere else. So that the the, it, the the adverse impact would be more spread out, and the benefit would be more concentrated. And those of us in the media will naturally gravitate to the most concentrated areas. 
That is that is a very <laughs> astute observation. I think that's dead right. That was Edward Alden from the Council on Foreign Relations. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. But before that, this week marks the 57th anniversary since President John F. Kennedy initiated the Alliance for Progress. The Alliance for Progress aimed to establish economic cooperation between the United States and Latin America. Here are President Kennedy's remarks from March 1961. We meet together as firm and ancient friends, united by history and experience, and by our determination to advance the values of American civilization. For this new world of ours is not a mere accident of geography. Our continents abound together by a common history, the endless exploration of new frontiers. Our nations are the product of a common struggle, the revolt from colonial rule, and our people share a common heritage, the quest for the dignity and the freedom of man. For our unfilled task is to demonstrate to the entire world that man's unsatisfied aspirations for economic progress and social justice can best be achieved by free men working within a framework of democratic institutions. As a citizen of the United States, let me be the first to admit that we North Americans have not always grasped the significance of this common mission. Just as it is also true that many in your own countries have not fully understood the urgency of the need to lift people from poverty and ignorance and despair. If we are to meet a problem so staggering in its dimension, our approach must itself be equally bold, an approach consistent with the majestic concept of Operation Pan-America. Therefore, I have called on all people of the hemisphere to join in a new alliance for progress, Alianza Para Progressa, a vast cooperative effort, unparalleled in magnitude and nobility of purpose, to satisfy the basic needs of the American people for homes, work, and land, health, and schools, techo, trabajo, y tierra, salud y escuela. Let us once again transform the American continent into a vast crucible of revolutionary ideas and efforts. now for my closing remarks. Since World War II, America has been the undisputed global economic champion. The majority of Americans living today know only the United States as an economic and military superpower. Unfortunately, history reminds us that there is an expiration date on all great powers. From the Roman Empire to the present moment, great powers eventually fall. Writing in the Atlantic magazine, Richard Haas, 
president of the Council on Foreign Relations said, when great powers fade, as they inevitably must, it is normally for one of two reasons. Some powers exhaust themselves through overreach abroad, underinvestment at home, or a mixture of the two. I wish I had another characteristic undergirding Haas's accurate observations, which is arrogance. It is unavoidable, for it is the predictable byproduct of being a great power. From the greatest generation to the end of the Cold War, one might suggest that America, like other great powers, came by its hubris naturally. With its economic status being legitimately challenged, the arrogance that once felt like an ally furthers its erosion. Arrogance is playing the role of Iago in Shakespeare's Othello, telling America what it wants to hear while infecting it with jealousy and betrayal, ultimately undermining its best interests. And what CNN's Fareed Zakaria defines as the rise of the rest, America's response has been the lapse into a rhapsodic nostalgia that harkens to a time, assuming it ever existed, has no chance of returning. This is the fundamental problem with President Donald Trump's tariffs on steel and aluminum. If it were to produce an economic advantage, which most experts doubt, it reflects policy based on yesteryear. If protectionism didn't work when America enjoyed a greater economic advantage, why would it work today? Ironically, on the same day that America was languishing in protectionism, the Trans-Pacific Partnership went into effect without the United States' participation. It is legitimate to be concerned with the job loss sustained by many Americans and the unfaithful trade practices by China. But the prescription offered by America is to place its hopes on regurgitating an industry that is essentially antiquated. I say that not as a disparagement, but a sober assessment. Jiffy Lube's co-founder, Stephen Spinelli Jr., in a CNBC article last month suggested that automation would eliminate one million American jobs by 2026. This is the conversation America needs to have. How do we prepare the populace for the inevitable change? In the run-up to World War II, Franklin Roosevelt, during his famous fireside chats, prepared the American people for the tough road ahead, assuring that victory would occur, but not without setbacks. America's future economic prosperity rests not with cheap political shibboleths, but with clear-headed reality, tariffs are, at best, political tourniquets designed to stop the bleeding in the short term, not provide long-term healing. The serious response to the trade problem is not preparing Americans for the jobs that are most likely not coming back, but with an eye to the future, having a workforce ready to assume the emerging jobs. That, however, is a proposition that will not materialize before the next election cycle. So as America plays politics, tantalizing a few with useless pabulum, the rest of the world is playing future prosperity. As President Kennedy stated when he accepted the Democratic nomination for president, for the world is changing. The old era is ending. The old ways will not do. Abroad, the balance of power is shifting. 
There are new and more terrible weapons and new and uncertain nations, new pressures of population and deprivation. The threats and weapons that Kennedy referred in 1960 are of a different variety today. It is now the threats and weapons of mind, ingenuity, and a commitment to the future. The failure to realize this phenomenon is preparing the American people to take solace in fomenting that they were once a great power. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Leave a comment on iTunes. It helps our rankings. You can also follow me on Twitter as well as Facebook. My weekly column can be found in the Sunday edition of the Winston-Salem Journal and Politics NC. That's Politics, North Carolina. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. (laughs) 